Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. What would you do if you were tasked with building an entire universe on an infinitesimally small budget? Where would you even start? This is probably the biggest problem that any independent filmmaker with a science fiction project must solve. Co-directors Zeke Earl and Christopher Caldwell have found a solution. To put it plainly, you can't separate the money from the creativity. Some people may falsely interpret this sentiment as, you have to make sacrifices to make a film within your means. What a filmmaker should really be thinking is, what are the creative decisions we can make that will make our film look expensive? For Earl, Caldwell, and producer Bryce Budkey, this meant that every creative decision was tied with a producing decision. Perhaps the most important of these decisions was to rent a warehouse in Seattle, fill it up with 30 different artists, from bike makers to carpenters, and go through seven months of pre-production, building the universe of their debut feature prospect as practically and detailed as they could. Their efforts garnered them the Adam Yaw Cornblower Award after their premiere at South by Southwest. This singled out their film as the best in the visions category. I sat down with Zeke, Christopher, and Bryce to discuss their old school, unorthodox methods and what it takes to build a utopia in pre-production. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco and I am here with several members of the Prospect team. I'm gonna let you guys introduce yourselves so that the audience can get familiar with your voices. Um, starting with you. Uh, I'm Zeke Earl, uh, I co-writer, co-director, and cinematographer. Uh, Chris Caldwell, uh, co-writer, co-director. I'm Bryce Budkey, the co-producer. Awesome. So let's start by just giving us a, a little log line for what your project is. Uh, Prospect is a, a sci-fi western about a, a father and daughter prospecting team who uh, go to a remote alien forested moon to try to um, dig some valuable gemstones uh, out of the ground. Um, and yeah, it's uh, uh, things kind of go to shit from there. Mm -hmm. Like any good movie. Um, so then, you know, you guys had this uh, short at South, was it at South By that mm -hmm. it premiered? Yeah. How long ago was that? 2014. 2014? Okay. Mm -hmm. So how long has this whole journey been to make this feature? Since then. Since then? Yeah, we've been, it's been kind of our sole focus since the short premiered. Okay. Um, uh, admittedly, we were a little bit underprepared for, for the release of the short film. We didn't have a script in hand, mm. um, but there mm -hmm. was a lot of excitement immediately after releasing the short, and we scrambled to throw together a treatment. We flew down to L.A. and took a bunch of pitch meetings, some of which went disastrously. Um, and, and, and from that point on, it was just a continuous uh, back and forth of, of working on the script, uh, flying to L.A. to pitch it. Um, a lot of ups and downs, uh, a lot of uh, false starts, but mm -hmm. we just kept working on it and developing. And it's kind of like, you know, if we count the time that we were working on the short, which was was legitimately still like part of the development of the feature, right. we've been, been developing this world for six years. Um, so yeah. So let's just start there. I mean, what can you, what kind of advice can you give to people who are uh, coming off of success with a short and having these meetings and trying to pitch for a larger feature? Um, <laughs> what are some well, things that you learned it's there? Like you know, I, I don't know if we did it the right way. It took us you know f four years from that point on to get financed. Uh, I mean, I think it, it goes without saying having a short film 
absolutely huge proof of concept shows what you can do and in a chunk we also had a concept art book mm -hmm. we had a very production design heavy world so we did a lot of renderings and we we uh printed it very impressively really heavy it was like an encyclopedia so we could slam it down on on tables nice when we went to meetings i mean we were fortunate enough to have a lot of very enthusiastic collaborators our production designer and a lot of the uh, sets and props designers were working with us you know, for no pay, they had their day jobs, nights and weekends, and, and helping us do the designs, put together the pitch book, concept artists donate, donating their time. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as just getting really explicit with the strategy, I think like if we were to do, if we were to do, I mean, having a, a feature script in hand would definitely be good advice. It might have expedited things if we had done that. Um, but um, I think one thing is uh, we, we believe very much in, in getting uh, short films online. Um, after we premiered at South by Southwest, uh, we just immediately put it online because um, you get that stamp of approval from the festival, which is great. But doing a festival run, you know, a long festival run, that's just keeping, limiting the amount of eyes that can get on the project. Um, and then, yeah, I think uh, the pitch book was very much directly inspired by watching Yodorovsky's Dune huh. and seeing how that thing went together. It's like, we want one. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, let's talk about your production design because, you know, making a low-budget science fiction movie is a pretty difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that, you know, you really have to think about where your money's going in terms of, like, building this world. So where did you guys, like, put that emphasis? What was What was, like, your biggest focus in production design to build this world because it looks great like it looks amazing for a low budget science fiction mm, i'll say you. that yeah yeah well i mean there's there's a million kind of little tricks worked in there like you know they wear spacesuits like almost the entire movie so you're not making like multiple costumes mm -hmm. you make one really really good looking costume mm. and uh our Space travel in our universe is really claustrophobic, which means all the spaceships are small. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just very, you know, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know, because I've, I've not gone through a conventional process, but we, like, I, we were, we, we opened a warehouse in Seattle where we hired, um, like, a ton of people directly, like, I don't think anyone, barely anyone had ever worked on a movie before, hmm. but they, they all came together, so we were kind of in, in making this up as, as we went along, and uh, probably the most fun, gratifying part of this process was, like, kind of, like, every day sitting next to our production designer, Matt Acosta, and, like, discussing this stuff. Like, we were so involved in production design. I think that's what it just really kind of comes down to, is we didn't just, like, pass this job off and, you know, give notes every once in a while. Like, we were there every single day thinking about the movie, thinking about the shots, thinking about what was actually going to be on screen. So, like, I was, you know, able to influence, like, weird budget decisions on like what type of lights to buy for this thing even when like my like, guys you know we're not gonna actually see that be and we'll save 200 bucks if we do it this way mm -hmm. and like literally every creative decision um you know was tied with a producing decision like you can't like separate the money from the from the creativity um when you're working on on this scale totally yeah the only thing i just want to add to that is that as far as like how the, where the money went in this kind of is like the wrong answer as far as strategically working with low budgets, but really it was about density. It was about detail, and it was about you know when you're creating when you're creating a, a, an entirely fictional universe. You know, you shoot something in contemporary um, Earth, 
uh, you know, you kind of have all the accoutrement of the world at your at your service. And, and when you're we're trying to build everything from scratch, um, it's it's really just the pursuit of achieving that level of reality. And so there's a lot of effort put in, into graphic design. There was a big focus on like making sure there's branding on every little thing because these are objects that were created by manufacturers that mm -hmm. people purchased. Um, so I mean that those kind of details were were immensely important to us in, in just kind of the creative um, architecture of the world. Um, we we developed a children's TV show just so that we could put the cartoon character on uh, our, our lead character's sweatshirt, huh. um, that kind of thing. So. so were those details that you all had in your mind before you went into production, like before you went into, I guess pre-production, uh, of like building a lot of it. World? A lot of it was, and a lot of it that you know, there's 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 cases where we knew we wanted to do some cool thing and. Um, then a lot of stuff we discovered through the process because like like Zeke said we opened up our own warehouse yeah. where we all were every day for pre-production the production office was there all of the uh, craftsmen who were building all the props and sets were there and it was just like a constant dialogue and so um, yeah I think a, a lot of across the across the board the uh, the production design team just it, it was they, their their contributions were their creative contributions were just constantly in the mix it was less like and you do this you do this you do this and um, yeah I think what might be really surprising for a low budget film like this is we actually threw so much away like good shit wow like, uh, like what <laughs> I mean I'm just like my first thing that pops in my mind is like we made like a essentially a cigarette advertisement it was like this beautiful thing done by an illustrator and it was supposed to be on the t-shirt uh, of a character that we cut but we like we made the t-shirt we made the costume <clears throat> or actually we ended up cutting most of our biggest set wow so what was that set it's it was the in, interior of a, of a of a freighter of a cargo. It's like the container. opening scene right. where we just see yeah. her listening to the headphones, but there was like kind of a scene that just didn't work out um, pacing wise. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think th there's just so much stuff that that like people like because when we when you're there watching everyone put like someone worked on this for a week yeah. and then it just like isn't in the movie or it's like there but the camera just never catches it. Um, but I think uh, on the other hand, it's like you have to air too much if you're gonna like because you know the the flip side of that is like something feeling right empty, you so. don't have it so I, how <laughs> sorry go ahead oh no, i say and the only counterpoint to this whole conversation is that the whole rainforest needs no set dressing yeah there you yeah, go yeah I mean, that's a good point <laughs> so how do you break that news to someone that their like work isn't gonna be in the picture I, I have written a lot of emails that were you know like i, I like it's 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 this this film was made by a family like people were like we have again like this warehouse I've been kind of calling it a clubhouse like people were sleeping there they were you know being paid for like eight hour days and they were spending like 14 hours mm -hmm. like all in and it's it's like I got a call from like our, our head of transportation the other day he like wanted to know how the premiere went like this is such a tight-knit family around this film and so yeah like every like and i'm just you know when i see a piece of production design that doesn't get in it's like yeah i feel like an obligation to like tell that person in person yeah and everyone's but, great about it and everyone's excited about at the same time it was such a team yeah. effort that like the the team just put out all the stuff you know, kind of together. It's like, I mean, individual ownership of like a particular prop, like it happens with, <laughs> with like hero stuff, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's also just kind of a collective effort because we were just hurling pieces of plastic and tubing at, at the screen. <laughs> so how long were you in this, this warehouse is fascinating. Yeah, to me. we had, we had seven months of pre-production, which for an indie film is huge. Yeah. And 
one of the biggest hurdles to getting financed because we would walk into these rooms in LA and say, yeah, we need, you know, well, we were asking for a year for a long time. And then we, then we shortened that to seven months and people just looked at us like we were insane. Like, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, well, look at the numbers. It adds up. And mm-hmm. it, it finally took a, a, our financier, who are like an incredible group of people, Braun Studios uh, in Canada, who like were like, all right, guys, you know, yep, that does sound crazy, but like we'll take a gamble. Awesome. How many people were in that warehouse? Like part of that team. Um, there were uh, uh, fifteen people day to day, and then uh, on certain phases we would phase up to maybe thirty or so, especially as we're getting more towards production. Mm. So it was a, a, a regular cast of people. Yeah, and day. it's worth pointing out that we did have a number of satellite like vendors working on specialty things as well. It wasn't a hundred percent there. How specialized but, yeah. were these jobs? Like, what were some of these job titles in the warehouse? In terms of like, I mean, it was, it's it was probably it was, the opposite of that actually. Really? Where yeah, people were like, we'd figure out what they were good at. Yeah, because yeah. we were so. pulling people. Seattle, particularly for production design, doesn't have like a huge um, uh, presence, uh, and so we were pulling people who like mechanics, cosplayers, <laughs> um, industrial engineers. Um, cause yeah. And people just working across all types of in, like non-film industry. And in a lot of ways, I think that helped inform kind of like the aesthetic of the film because, you know, we were coming at it from a very utilitarian approach, like anything like, you know, definitely style present, but like being conscious of like, you know, would even, even with architecture, the spaceships drawing a lot from, uh, like 60s space race era, like cosmonauts and, and NASA and like that kind of thing. And so I think the backgrounds not being from like people who are used to making props, particularly for sci-fi movies, you kind of get locked into a certain spectrum. And it was nice having people who just had no, they weren't bringing what? anything other than like actual industrial design to the table. I think one of the things, uh, that that might be un- unusual for even like a conventional set building is that we we bought uh, a CNC machine like a four by eight robotic uh, CNC machine. So um, all the sets were designed like virtually like digitally and cut out of flat pieces of material and kind of assembled almost like like a big Lego kit. Yeah, uh, that was crazy because like we'd have our set designers and they'd be sitting and working for weeks just on their computers and then it would t- become time to like print the set and so like in one day, all of a sudden there's like a massive structure. Wow. Yeah. So how long did that set take to, would like a set take to build that way in terms of actually like physically producing it rather than on the computer? Because if you're spending weeks on the computer, do you, is it is that much prep actually make it easier in a way? Because I, I think so. Like, it, and it was a very like one or like two or three people could put it together. Yeah. Like you just, you didn't need a whole lot of labor uh, on the ground. But yeah, some of these sets would fly up in a few days after like, you know, being prepped so extensively. And these are... People. And and that's where design. It's like they were going through the design process, like in the the 3D modeling, and and then designing, you know, with an eye toward uh, fabrication. And so by the time design was done, you had like basically schematics ready to print. And who were like who were these people uh, that did that? Like mm-hmm. were, they weren't actually. Our, our set, set our set design our our set leads were their names were uh, uh, Brandon Myers and Taylor Sizemore. Um, and yeah, like Taylor Sizemore, uh, is uh, a guy in Seattle. He kind of made a name for himself, like in this, like building custom bikes. Okay. Um, and, uh, Brandon he was does an amazing carpenter and like cabinet maker and yeah. like house guy. And yeah. And they were both just and like, he still does like, fuck yeah, let's make spaceships. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, okay. So now we've talked a bit about pre-production, like let's talk about post-production and like what you used that, but like how you allocated that money towards VFX and, uh, 
you know, making the, the first, like the space, uh, the outer space, mm-hmm. and then sort of what you brought in post-production to make the moon uh, actually look sort of yeah. ethereal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, CGI is something we're very, very critical of. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to make something that felt very tactile, very tangible. Um, so we, we, we put a lot of hard parameters around anything that's CGI. Um, there's I think there's only one shot in the entire movie that's 100% CGI. Um, but even even if you're looking at a spaceship, it's usually through a practically shot window. We always wanted some degree of griminess of texture that's that's real, that's that's filtered through our uh, fucked up lenses mm. um, to, to kind of frame that, that digital element. Uh, and then uh, we worked with uh, an incredible artist who's a longtime Seattle friend, uh, Ian Hubert, um, who has a, a knack for building spaceships. And he, yeah, spent, he just kind of, took this on as a passion project and put way, way more work into it than he was mm-hmm. being, you know, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like an, an, an artist. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like in, in every sense of the word, and he just got obsessed like with texture, and his challenge for, like, this film was, like, yeah. texture that matched the production design. And then so for the moon itself, the moon is, is covered in uh, toxic dust, and it was really important that that didn't feel like a shitty effect just over everything so it was all practically shot um we actually tried doing it in sort of like a studio situation in the warehouse but it wasn't working so then we actually went to my basement which is much more enclosed space and that had the right dust airflow that's like where the magic dust was so we spent like an entire awful day uh shooting dust in my basement and then it was very painstakingly layered on mm-hmm. shot by shot um, it has to match the camera movement if the camera's pushing oh in gosh. the dust has to like come past the camera or like you know everything and and then we you know finished it in 4k which we just didn't realize like i don't even know how many vfx shots are in our film because technically every dust shot is a vfx yeah. shot and like uh, probably one of the biggest things, and this is like only a no film school answer, just to like heads up everybody, yeah, like yeah. getting that that 4K like VFX layers of entire scenes to the post house was like a nightmare. I'm sure, it's just like terabytes upon terabytes yeah. of data. Like you couldn't upload it half the time. We were like driving hard drives to Canada, like a huge mess. How so? When you were shooting those uh, dust shots, did you also have to? Use, I mean, I'm assuming you also had to use the same camera. What mm-hmm. kind of camera did you use for this? Yeah, no, we shot the the film uh, on a on a red weapon and a red helium, mm-hmm. uh, mostly on the, the helium. So it was mostly shot in in eight K. Um, I think what is kind of particularly standard is that that choice was made in tandem with choosing our lenses, which yeah. are uh, made by uh, a really funky British dude named Richard Gale, who rehouses old Soviet and German lenses with like some kind of modern. Uh, elements and makes them kind of cinema ready and he designed some custom lenses for prospects so we kind of wanted to take that 8k resolution coming out of the helium and just like fuck it up with glass as as much as possible and um uh and then one of the we we shot the short film anamorphically but it was just so restrictive Hmm. to our workflow in the feature given um kind of the anamorphics we were I mean, really able to afford in a lot of ways. Like, it's a really budget-conscious decision um, where we wanted, like, just kind of a cheaper, lighter setup that we could duplicate and have, have more yeah. more resources on the ground. Um, but we, we chose to 
in this in this crazy lens system developed by Richard, you can put these metal aperture discs. They're fixed aperture discs in the back of the lens. You like unscrew a thing, put in a metal disc that's a 3x oval <laughs> that creates an anamorphic bokeh that's not even like possible with like real lenses. Wow! So it distorts and stretches the whole forest, which is really important because it's like you know we're very cognizant we're shooting an alien planet that is Earth, and we're not gonna like trick anyone to thinking that we didn't shoot on Earth, but like it distorts that forest. Forest and makes it feel kind of eerie and, and otherworldly. Very, very proud of our bokeh. We love our bokeh. It's amazing. <laughs> Stand by our bokeh. Um, okay, wow. Okay, so we're, we got to wrap up here, but I guess I'll ask, uh, I'll finish on this question that I ask a lot of my guests, mm. which is if you had one piece, pearl of wisdom, uh, of advice to emerging filmmakers. I mean, it's just got to be the one that everyone says, sure. where it's just like, go make shit. Um, I mean, there's. You know, there's just no excuse, and that's kind of like where, how how we started, and and you know, it was it was just not. I feel like in a lot of ways we kind of jumped a lot of steps just because part of it I think was being in Seattle and being in kind of an isolated film industry where mm. we were just kind of on our own yeah. and just like left to our own devices. And then um, as soon as you can, if you, you know, as soon as you can get eyes on stuff, just you know, things pile up from there. But you got to make that first thing. And you got to keep throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a marathon. Like, it's like you can't think of it like any other career. You can't think of it. Um, uh, well, I think Guillermo, like, I was watching the the THR roundtables for, like, the director, and Guillermo del Toro said, like, identified that one of, like, the, the most important attributes for a director is stamina. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely, like, that felt, like, spot on as far as, like, you know, we're very early in our stages, but already it's just, like, you know, sitting with the same movie for three years, trying time and time again to try to get money. You know, you gotta you gotta be prepared to grind. What are some like tips for filmmakers to uh, keep that stamina alive? What are some things that you guys did? I mean, I I'm I'm like this is where I'd like turn into an advocate of like a co-directing relationship. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing this process like alone. Like Chris and I like really actually like support each other. Cause it's like an emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. and like to be by yourself. Like I, you know, I, I can't imagine it would It'd be, be rough. Harder. Yeah. It's incredible that you were DP for this too. Right. And that's why, yeah, yeah. yeah that's how that works. That, that only, only works if you are, if you are co-directing yeah, with somebody. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, damn, I wish we could, uh, have some more time to and get that's into that, true. but people have done it. People, <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I can't it's like, imagine. Don't I can't recommend imagine. it. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, maybe not on your first feet. People have <laughs> done a lot of things that have like gotten themselves killed. Like, gosh. Great guys. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you again. I'm sure. Yeah, cool. yeah I'd love good, to. Man. Cool. Yeah. All right. Big fans. Have Thank a you. great South by. You too. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, go ahead and subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you choose to use. Rate us, let us know what you think about the show, and make sure to catch both Ryan Koo's new podcast, The First Feature, in which he details all of the entire filmmaking process that went into making his first feature amateur, and, of course, Indie Film Weekly every Thursday. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. You can follow No Film School at No Film School.